Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Good morning, and uh, you can be, as you're finding your seats and getting situated, looking for Job chapter 2. Uh, if you have one of the red hardcover Bibles, I think it's on page 418. Job is um, right before Psalms, and most Bibles fall open to Psalms if you just kind of stick your thumb in the middle. So you can look for it there. And um, before I, I read our passage, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Before I read that, I want to give you two little scenarios to file away for later, okay? The first is uh, two men walking down the street in a small community, and they come on the local movie theater, and as they, as they approach it, they look up and they see the marquee, and they recognize the name of the movie, and both take a minute, mutter something about remembering what they've heard about the movie, and then walk on, choosing not to spend their $5 or $10 or whatever it is. The second scenario is two women sitting in church in a fairly large gathering, kind of on opposite sides, and it happens to be Communion Sunday, and as the ushers come forward and then they start to pass plates of bread and juice, um, if you looked closely enough, you would notice both of these women getting slightly anxious and kind of very subtly glancing to their left and their right, and then both as the bread is passed and as the cup is passed, sort of meekly take what's offered them and pass it along. Both very common everyday scenarios, both seemingly innocuous, and they have something in common, and I'll share that with you later. So file that away, and we'll, we'll talk about it more in a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to talk about an enormous concept, spiritual warfare. I was asked earlier in the week how I was doing my preparation, and I said, the elephant doesn't fit in the bread box. <laughs> this is a huge topic, and I've got a few minutes to share it with you this morning. Um, this could easily be a series that would go on for a long time, so I'm going to do my best. Stick with me. But before we do anything else, let's read together, if you want to follow along, Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here's what the Word of God says. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, <clears throat> excuse me, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck 
Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us such rich treasure in your word, and I'm so grateful. But Lord, I know there have already been a lot of words this morning, sung and spoken, and even silently repeated in the heart, and I pray, Lord, that the words that we hear now would ring true in our ears and in our hearts. Father, whatever I have to say that gets in the way, I pray that you would do away with it, that your spirit would be working in our hearts so that we would be molded and shaped to be more like your son. Father, equip us for the battle that is all around us. Show us how we can be on the right side of the war. Show us your victory. And Father, I pray in all things that your son would be glorified. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are at war. Some of you know it. Some of you sort of sense something, but you're really not sure what to make of it. Some of you uh, may be clueless. It's a true statement, though. The church of Jesus Christ is at war. And that includes us. We are part of his church. So what I want to do this morning is provide a quick update from the battleground. So if it helps, you can picture this as an old, grainy, black and white newsreel. And you can kind of picture me stuttering and skipping as the frames have been mat- patched and mended together. You know, the, the old kind that they did in the movie theaters where the correspondent was hunkered down on the front lines, hoping, you know, that the enemy wouldn't come and attack while he was doing his report and all of that and the bombs are going off, and the smoke is in the background. I don't have smoke in the background, but uh, if that helps. And like all good journalists, at least according to my middle school English teacher, a good report tackles the five W's, right? Who, what, when, where, why. Well, those will be the questions that form our outline as we walk through this. Now, I'm not going to have time to pay equal um, words to each of those, so some will spend more time on, some will be others. And I also vaguely remember from middle school English that if you got really good at the five W's for extra credit, you could throw in the big H, right? The how? So we'll try our best to throw that in at the end. So, looking at our text, let's launch down our questions. Who? Who's involved in this story that lays out before us? Well, the characters themselves are easy to identify. There aren't that many, at least not in this part of the book of Job. We've got God, we've got Satan, we've got Job. And typically at the beginning of this book, if we're talking about it or reading it together, Satan tends to get the most attention, probably because we don't talk a lot about him. And so people tend to focus on him and they want to know more about him. Well, we can learn a little bit about him from this passage. 
We learn that he is a spirit being of some sort. We learn that at the beginning of the passage as it opens up, the angels have come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan has come with them. And so somehow we know he's on that plane. He doesn't present, they don't present themselves like, like we do. Um, they present themselves somehow physically or whatever that looks like in heaven, we don't know, but we know that he is there in their midst. And then look at verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The first thing I would point out in this verse is he's given a name, Satan. But the name Satan is interesting in itself because it actually is a word that very easily translates from Hebrew to English. It means adversary or accuser. Some have said that perhaps this wasn't really a name proper, it was more of a title. Just That's how he was recognized. Here comes the adversary. Here comes our accuser. Either way, it tells us something about him. It is his identity that he is our adversary and he is the accuser. But he does say something that actually bears a bit of truth in this verse. He says, I've been walking around on the earth to and fro. And he probably was. That's the funny thing about our adversary. He is so good at mixing truth and lie that it can be very hard to tell. But this does bear some truth because even Peter, when he would write much later to the church, says, our adversary prowls about the earth. But that's only half the truth. Because the whole verse, if you read it in 1 Peter chapter 5, says, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So it's true that he walks around on the planet, but he walks around for a purpose, seeking to devour his prey. And Peter says, that prey, that's us. It's you and me. So we've got this spirit being who deceives and accuses and prowls around looking for unwary prey. And consider the role that God plays. He's, he's confronted, or at least he's in the presence in some way of this being who prowls around looking for his prey to devour. Is God in the least intimidated? Is he defensive? No. He's God. Our world would try to paint this story of God and Satan at war with one another. No. Satan remains silent until the Lord speaks to him. Satan recognizes his limits because God is God. As our story will unfold, we'll see that God gives Satan broad power to do much, but Satan also knows he can go no farther than what God has allowed him to do. And so when God would say, Job is in your hands, but you must spare his life, God is not hesitant or fearful or worried in any way that Satan may somehow cross that line. And finally, we have to think about Job. What do we know about this man Job? Well, much of what we know about him comes from the whole book as, uh, in all of its chapters, but we know a little bit from this passage. We know that he's about to be stricken, 
We know that he is about to suffer incredible physical pain. We know, too, that he's already suffered. Look at verse 3. The Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, though you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. You see, if we read the first chapter, we would see that Job was certainly a blessed man. He was incredibly wealthy. It calls him the wealthiest man of his day. He had ten children, and get this, they all got along. In fact, they had fun together. They enjoyed each other. And they enjoyed the family wealth to celebrate and to have parties and to rejoice in what God has done. And Job would sacrifice daily, and when he felt it was necessary, he would even sacrifice for his children out of his love for them because he was a righteous man and knew God was a righteous God. It sounds somewhat cliche, but I think we can honestly say Job had everything that a man on this earth could ask for. And then along comes our adversary. And along comes the war. Which invites us to ask our next W, what? What is this thing that we're going to call spiritual warfare? What is it all about? Well, as the story unfolds and we see these beings come directly into the presence of God, we first need to understand Spiritual warfare involves more than what you and I can see, right? More than what we can sense with our five senses. There's something going on that we don't fully experience, at least not yet. We will one day. But these beings that are different from us, they make their presence known here. Even though they operate on a different plane in one level, they somehow have the ability to interact in our world. And God even gives Satan the ability to do that. And the way that this warfare plays out, it can look widely different at different times and in different places. What is it? Well, if we were to read through chapter 1, we'd see that Satan is given the freedom to wage war in some very amazing ways. Amazing in the sense that we may not even consider this part of spiritual warfare. We talk about how wealthy Job was. Uh, As the richest man in town, of course, they measured wealth differently back then. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. Okay. (laughs) Um, Trust me, it's a lot of stuff. (laughs) But what does Satan do? What does the spiritual warfare look like? Well, the 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, they get stolen by a warring tribe in the area. And all the servants who are tending them are killed. The 7,000 sheep, they get consumed by what the servants call fire from heaven. We don't know what that means. Some would say it's lightning. No, it's not lightning. Half of the book of Job talks about thunder and lightning. They know the difference between fire from heaven and a bolt of lightning. But this thing happens that consumes the sheep and the shepherds and leaves only one man alive. 3,000 camels are captured by the Chaldeans, one of the people that would eventually become one of the largest 
nations in the world, at least at a, at a particular time, but at this moment, probably not. It doesn't matter. This nation swoops in. I don't know what it takes to corral 3,000 camels, but that's a lot of people fighting a battle. And that doesn't even touch on the most tragic verse in all of chapter 1. Job's ten children are having a nice little feast at the oldest son's house. And they describe the scene as a great wind from across the wilderness that sweeps in, strikes the four corners of the house, and it collapses, and everyone in it dies. Somehow, Satan is given the authority to use people and nations and tribes and miraculous fire from heaven and the natural occurrence of winds and all of these things. We look at them and they go, how is it possible that in one day they could all strike one man? One day. That's how spiritual warfare works. What is it? It's destruction. It's pain. It's bitterness. It's all of the things that we hope will never happen in our lives. And it's done because some being or beings that we don't even see are attacking. And they might do it in ways that we can see, but we don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. When does this happen? When does spiritual warfare occur? Anytime. See, there's this sort of historical when, you know, when did the book of Job happen? When does warfare occur? Uh, well, when the book of Job happened doesn't really matter because spiritual warfare started in the garden and it ends when Jesus comes back and does the equivalent of the nuclear bomb and says, it's over. Boom. Done. Until then, this war will rage on. But really, I'm more concerned about not the historical when in the broader context of our planet, but the personal when. When does warfare strike you? When does it hit me? Well, what do we know of Job? We know that in chapter 1, he was the richest man in town, that his children were enjoying a party, and that life was as good as it could get here on this planet. And boom, Satan attacks with all of the fury God will let him. And get this, you've lost everything you have. Literally, all of your worldly possessions are gone. Your children are buried in the rubble of a house. And Satan attacks again. When does spiritual warfare happen? When you're at the highest point and you're at the lowest point and anywhere in between. Where does it take place? Where do we find this battleground? For Job, it took place in the land all around him. I don't know what the pastures and the grazing land look like for sheep and camels and donkeys, but you can imagine it was spread across a vast expanse. And Satan attacked all across it. But look at verse 7 in our passage. 
Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. Where? From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Every inch of Job's body was racked with pain. And so he, he literally took a piece of broken pottery, something sharp with an edge to it, and just scratched because it itched and it hurt and he was trying to get relief. And it didn't stop at Job's body. Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Can you imagine what those words must have done to that man who's lost everything he has? And the one person he still has, the one person who's closest to him in all the world, turns on God and begs him to do the same. So yes, spiritual warfare can take place on its global scale. It can involve nations fighting nations. It can involve power struggles. And it can involve things that happened all across the planet. And it can involve the people that are closest to you. And it can involve your body. And it can involve your mind. And it can involve your soul. So where does it happen? Anywhere, everywhere. Okay, I need to pause the newsreel for a minute. We're getting through our W's, and it's looking really grim. And there's a temptation here that I want us to avoid, okay? It's really easy to fall into the trap that people call seeing a devil behind every bush. And every time something bad happens, we're wondering which demon is behind it or whether the devil's after us. I love the the pastor who's well-known and has a big church and has done well, who said, who's asked the question, what is it like to go toe-to-toe with the devil? And he kind of laughs and he says, in honest humility, the devil doesn't need to come after me. I have my own wars to fight in here. If the devil would ever notice me, it would only be in passing. You see, sometimes we get so caught up in what's the spiritual component of everything that's going on here that we just get fearful and we get frozen and we say, everything going on, Satan is just wreaking havoc. Well, there are times it looks that way. I can imagine Job felt that way. But we can't let that fear take over to the point where we simply say, what's the point? I would really encourage you, read the end of the book. Read the end of this book. Read Job 38, 39, 40, and you'll see how it comes out, and you'll see who wins. But read the end of the book. Spend some time in Revelation. Don't get hung up with the weird monsters and the goofy images. That's a really small part of the book. The really big part of the book is Jesus wins. But nevertheless, we are confronted with these things. We do have a war that we are fighting. And if I were Job, the question I would ask would be why. Actually, I don't have to imagine. If you read chapter 3, 
Six times in one chapter, he says, why? Why? Why could this happen to me? You see, it's okay to ask why. Bad things happen. It's okay. Job goes to the extreme. He says, it would have been better if I'd never been born. In chapter 10, Job says to God, Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before an eye saw me. That's grief. It's pain and it's anguish. And it comes out in why. And we can ask why. Now the strange thing is, we're sitting here 5,000 years later and we know why. We can read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and we can see what God's all about. And then we can go to the end and we can see how God brings this around and shows his glory and his awesomeness through the story of Job. We know why. Job didn't know why. And as far as we can tell, he never knows why. When God reveals himself to Job at the end of the story, he never, not one verse says, oh, and by the way, this is why I did this. Oh, and by the way, you got to know Satan was behind this. Oh, by the way, you have an adversary and he came after you and I let him, but I saved you in the end. No, none of that. Job doesn't get the benefit of the whole book. And so sometimes we're in the middle of a war and we don't know why. Now, sometimes we do, okay? Sometimes there is a reason why and sometimes we can know why. And it's important to think about it. It's important to ask the question and it's important to be honest. Sometimes spiritual warfare is brought on because of sin, Last week, Pastor Dave shared with us out of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this man who was living a horrible lifestyle. And Paul says, turn this man over to Satan so that maybe he will repent. And so sometimes sin is behind what's going on. And that's what drives the warfare. And sometimes God lets Satan have his way with us because we're in sin and we need to experience the full consequence of that sin in order to be brought to repentance. Sometimes it's not sin. Sometimes God is just strengthening his army. The church here today and around the world and historically, the church overflows with story after story of men and women who have endured times of great battles so that they can be equipped to lead others through the next battle. Sometimes God is adding to his church. Sometimes God is building up his church. Sometimes God is strengthening his church through war. And sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes God is purging. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Remember the husband and wife who came to the apostles and said, hey, we made all this money on the sale of some really nice property. Here you go. And the apostles said, well, we didn't ask you to do this. 
You were to do this out of the generosity of your own heart, and here you are lying to God because they didn't bring all the money in. They just wanted it to look like they brought all the money in. And when they laid the money down, it wasn't all that they had made, but they said it was all that they had made. And the apostles say, how dare you lie to our God? And they die. Instantly. Is that spiritual? You bet. When your spirit is taken from your body, sometimes God is purging his church and cleansing in ways that can be painful. And sometimes God is writing a testimony. There are men and women in this room, they have battle scars that I can only imagine. There are saints that I admire that have gone before and that are in other places right now who endured through times of hopelessness and despair. And there are battles that I fought in my own life that I pray that God will someday let me turn and share with someone else that I can say, I know where you're at, but let me bear witness. Let me give testimony to who God is and what he does. And so sometimes spiritual warfare is happening and the best answer I can give you is because God is writing a testimony in the life of his children that will be used for the next day of battle. But honestly, probably more than we want to admit, we're stuck with the I don't know. And sometimes we just have to be honest and say, this really stinks. And this really hurts. And I don't know. One thing I do know, I know why the enemy fights. And it may not be because of what you think. Verse 5 in our passage, Satan says to God, Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. You know, we might be tempted to think that Satan's after us, that Satan wants to go after Job to make him suffer. No. What does Satan want to have happen? Satan only wants one thing to happen. He wants Job to curse God to his face. Now, he thought he could get it done by taking away everything he had and slaughtering his children. That didn't work. So now, he says, I can make him physically suffer to the point where he will turn on you. You see, Satan doesn't want us. He wants God to be brought low. He wants our Heavenly Father to be made to look like nothing in our eyes. He wants God to be made unworthy of our worship. This isn't about you and me. We're pawns. We're stuck in the middle. And Satan will do whatever he can to use us against our creator. But here's the funny thing about that. We've got this story full of, of sorrow and pain and grief. Spiritual warfare doesn't always look like that. My guess is most of us have turned against God not because of some pain or suffering, but because of some pleasure. You see, our adversary is a crafty fellow. He doesn't care if we hurt. He doesn't care for having fun. If he can get us to turn against God, that's a victory for him. 
And so we need to be on our guard against these kinds of painful um, events. But we need to be equally on our guard against those things that look so good that we'd be willing to cast God aside to grab hold of them. Pain and pleasure are both the same side of a very sharp sword. And Satan wants to use that sword to turn us against our God. So there's our five W's. Oh, and the little stories I gave you. The men walking down the street, and they glance up at the marquee, and they see the movie, and they each say, ah, I know a little about that movie. One man, when he says, I know a little about that movie, he means, I read the reviews. It sounds like a terrible movie. It's not worth my $10, and he walks on. The second man sees the name, and he, when he says, I've read a little about that movie, he means, I know that's the kind of movie that will take me places I don't need to go. And that's the kind of movie that will tempt me in ways I may not be able to withstand. And I'm going to walk on. On the outside, it looks exactly the same. But on the inside, one is engaged in spiritual warfare, and he knows it. And the other one is just trying to find his entertainment. The two women sitting in the church, passing the plate for communion, they both look a little anxious. They both look a little uncertain. They both glance around and pass it on. One is because she's unfamiliar. She doesn't know what's happening, and she's trying to look like everybody else to fit in so that people don't realize that she's out of place and out of her element. And she's just hoping to do what they do and get in and get out, and she's done her church time, and that's good. The other has come to the point in her worship where she's going to the table of the Lord, and she knows, I'm unworthy to be here. And she knows... There are people here that know I'm unworthy to be here. But more importantly, God knows I'm unworthy to be here. And her anxiety is because she is at war, and she knows the consequences, and she knows that only because of the Savior represented by the body and the blood, by the bread and the juice, only because of that Savior can she do this. And inside, she's grieving at her own sin as she rejoices the Savior who saved her from it. She's in the middle of spiritual warfare. But on the outside, it looks the same. And that's true in many, many ways. We don't know day to day where these unseen creatures are and what they're up to. We can guess. We have evidence. We have lots of things we can contemplate. We know where we are. That's what we have control over. So if we're willing to engage in this battle and fight this war, how do we do that? Well, we go to our extra credit. We've got our H. We pull out our how and we say, how do we fight this spiritual battle? Let me offer you one way not to fight it. And I offer this because it's a popular way and it's a way that even many churches will throw out at you. You were not designed to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these creatures. You see, there's a whole lot of popular culture in Christendom that says, you know, to bind Satan and chase after Satan and go after the demons of darkness and all this stuff. 
Be very, very careful. I would encourage you sometime this week to take out Acts chapter 19. It's been a long time since we were there in Acts, but in Acts chapter 19, there were seven brothers who fancied themselves exorcists, sons of a Jewish priest who had this ability to throw off demons, or at least so they thought. And they heard the Apostle Paul preaching, and they said, wow, this apostle has incredible miraculous powers, and they heard that he preached only in the name of Jesus. And so the next time these seven brothers were called to a house to exercise a demon, they said, we're going to use our newest weapon. And they said to the demon, we command you to come out in the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims. They went toe to toe. And the demon through this man says, Jesus, I know Jesus. Paul, I've heard of Paul. <laughs> You're not either one. The man leaps on all seven of them and he beats them to a bloody pulp. All their clothes are ripped off and they barely escape with their lives. So before you start throwing around incantations, know what you're saying. So, um, by the way, that's not to say Jesus' name has no power. <laughs> Don't take this one out of context. Jesus' name has all the power. There is no other name by which man can be saved. And I'm pretty confident if I was confronted with that scenario and I really thought I was going up against a demon, yeah, I'd be calling on Jesus' name. But you've got to know the power is not in the incantation or in the throwing around of charms and magic words. The power is in who Jesus is. So, let's consider a couple of perhaps more successful examples. How do we wage this war? Let me give you three quick examples out of Scripture, and you see if you find the common thread. Listen carefully. You might pick it up on it. Paul tells us, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. In the book of Jude, we get this really kind of odd story just sort of tossed into the middle. Jude says, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Jesus himself, shortly before he was to be betrayed, warned Peter. And Jesus said, Satan has demanded to have you, Peter, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Get that? Jesus himself prayed for Peter. Michael, who we often believe may be the chief of the angels, doesn't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil in his own account. He says, the Lord needs to intervene here. Paul, the greatest of the apostles in many ways, goes to God and says, Lord, please, take this from me. Prayer is our number one weapon. It was a weapon waged by Jesus himself and all who follow him. If we're not praying, we're not doing what Jesus did, 
then I fear that everything else we do may be in vain. Now, there's more we can do, but prayer, by any stretch, is probably the most important thing we can do. Well, what else can we do? From Job, in the first chapter, we learned that he did something in the middle of spiritual warfare. In chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Job, now this is after all of the calamity and the catastrophe. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters, we can continue to worship. We can continue to exalt our God, even in grief and loss. We often think that worship somehow means we have to be happy and fun-loving and excited and sing cheery songs. Well, sure, we can do that, and that may be worship, but it's not just that. Sometimes worship happens in our saddest moments. Job worships. And Job does not turn his back on God. At the end of this calamity in chapter 2 that we read, his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says, no, I will not turn my back on God. That's all part of our worship. It involves clinging to the one who saves us and empowers us and who created us. And it involves never forsaking the faith that got us here in the first place. Well, there's something else we can do. Church, brothers and sisters, family of God, sometimes we can come together. That happened with Job. After all of this, three of his friends showed up. We didn't get to that part in the story, but here's how it happens. They all get planned and come together, and they say, sorry, Job says, when they saw Job from a distance, they did not recognize him because of all these sores that were all over him. He was in such bad shape. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Sometimes just being together. Seven days and seven nights, not a word was spoken, but they were there for their friend. Sometimes that's what we need. Sometimes we realize that in the midst of suffering or in the midst of warfare, we have gone wrong. And so one of the other weapons that needs to be in our hand at a moment's notice is the weapon of repentance. Job pulls this out at the end of the book. At the end of the whole story, after being confronted with the literal, physical presence of God, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And sometimes... Our awareness of God drives us to repentance. And that's actually a weapon 
that we can pull out in the midst of spiritual warfare. Because remember, sometimes warfare is happening because of sin. It might be ours, it might be someone else's, but if it's ours, there's only one way to deal with that, and that's to go to the cross. It's a powerful weapon. And yet there's actually two sides to that weapon. There's the, the side that says, Lord, I have sinned and I need your forgiveness. But the other side is the giving of forgiveness. You see, we can use that weapon for ourselves, but we can use it for others in the way that says, like Job, you have done something that hurt me and now I need to forgive you. Forgiveness is one of those weapons. You see, <laughs> The funny thing about Job's friends is they sat there for seven days and seven nights and they said nothing. And then they goofed. <laughs> they opened their mouths. And for 30 chapters, there's this raging debate between Job and his friends. And they try to give him advice and it's terrible advice. And they try to explain what's happening and it's wrong. And God shows up. And God says, I'm God. And Job says, I know and I repent. And then God turns to the friends and says, and you were wrong. And here's what he does. He says, you need to repent because you were wrong, but then you need to go to Job. And my servant Job will pray for you, and I will forgive you. And Job does. He prays for his friends. He forgives them. Sometimes we handle situations badly. And sometimes God chastises us and sometimes he lets our friends chastise us and sometimes it's both and forgiveness needs to be the end of that process. And so we have these weapons at our disposal. Prayer, worship, coming together, repenting, and forgiving. Those are not the only weapons that we have. We have this thing called the Word of God, a sword in the hand, and I would encourage you to use it. Go to Ephesians chapter 6 this week. It will give you more weapons. It will give you more tools in this fight. But in the end, I would tell you this. This is a war that is won. This is one of those very strange wars in history where the battle continues even after all of the treaties are signed. These weren't treaties signed by superpowers getting together and deciding terms. This was Jesus Christ going to the cross. This was our Savior saying, I will win this war because you can't. And one day we will hear a trumpet blast like no trumpet has ever been played. One day we will see that Savior coming. And these beings that we don't even know what they look like, we will see them and we will be terrified. And in the same instant, we will rejoice. Because one day the battle will end. Jesus will lead the armies of heaven. Until then, brothers and sisters and fellow soldiers, we fight on. Praise God. He gives us the tools we need to fight on. Father, you are an amazing God. You've created in amazing ways. 
And there are so many things about your creation that we don't understand. And one of those things is this thing called spiritual warfare. God, why are there beings that we don't see or hear that have an impact on our lives? We don't know. But you do. And so, Lord, we come to you and we pray humbly, beseeching you. Give us what we need to fight this fight. Father, our church has suffered under the weight of this war. My brothers and sisters here have suffered at the hands of evil. I don't always know how or when or where. I don't need to, God. You do. Would you give them what they need to sustain themselves and others? Would you draw us together under your banner, at the foot of your cross? Father, would you do your work in us that we may fight the fight and continue to stand? And Lord, in all of this, don't let the enemy take away your glory. That's what he desires. But Father, let us proclaim it endlessly and worship you unceasingly. And Father, may you in all this be glorified above all else. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H Bible dot O-R-G.